Good morning, Calvary Church. So good to be here. Like Jim said, we were here in 2012 to 2014. And Grand Rapids, and especially Calvary, has such a, 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 such a great place in our hearts. Our two boys were born here, and then we went back to Ohio, and I get to be a pastor at the chapel, not in Akron, uh, but we have three campuses in Sandusky and Norwalk and Port Clinton. So Cedar Point, I'm right down the road, so come visit us. Jim said it best, I thought I was coming to Grand Rapids to go to uh, GRTS, but truly God wanted us to come to Grand Rapids so I could be a part of this amazing church. God brought me here specifically to teach me one thing and he hammered it over and over again in different ways. And that one thing is humility. Now I should be upfront and tell you, I am a huge Buckeye fan. So coming to Michigan, that was showing me humility of course. I won't go any further, sorry. <laughs> but also, I'll tell you, uh, we had really uh, amazing success at our church previously before coming here in our student ministries. And I could tell pretty quickly I was finding my identity in a position and not in the Savior and not fearing him and not showing all the things that I should be showing through my life in Christ. And it was through Jim and Tom and others who showed me humility. And I'm so grateful for Calvary because if it wasn't for this place, I wouldn't be who I am today. I've gone to different churches and have spoken. I have friends at different churches. And let me tell you, Calvary is a special place. Absolutely. Not because of the beautiful building or anything more than what the spirit is doing and is alive in this church. And so when I heard that I got to come and teach today, I was so humbled and the Lord just wanted me to start our time off by just praying a prayer of thanksgiving for you and just a prayer of blessing that God would continue to keep his hand on this incredible church. So pray with me if you don't mind. Father, so humbled to be back in this place that feels like home. Thank you for the people uh, both here and other people that don't even know that they've had an impact on my life in this place. I'm so grateful and humbled for Calvary Church. The ministry that happens inside and outside the walls in our world is truly remarkable. And it's not because of Jim and Tom and the elders. No, it's because of your spirit being alive in here. And we can sense that. And we're so grateful, Lord. Keep your hand of blessing on this church so that people continue to walk through these doors and then can walk out more like you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it was June 20th, 2017. I was in our church in a bunch of meetings that day and around 11.15 or so, my phone rang and I looked down and it was my mom. Now it was a surprise that my mom was calling because usually we text a lot more than we call each other. But it was during the day and she was at work and I'm at work and so it was odd that she called. So I ignored the call, not my mom by the way, I would never do that. But I ignored the call and I said, okay, I'll call her after the meeting. A couple moments go by, I look down, my phone's ringing again and this time it's my wife. And you know when you just get a sense that something is wrong, you don't know what it is but you just know, oh, I better buckle up. That's how I felt when my wife called. And so I took the call in the meeting and I just said, hey, my wife's calling. I feel like something's wrong. Let me just see what's going on. So I said, hello. And my wife said, Eric Scott, who is my stepdad, he's been in a terrible motorcycle accident. And immediately I screamed, is he dead? And Paula said, I don't know, but you need to pick up your mom at work and meet the ambulance at the hospital. So I remember leaving that meeting, sprinting down the hallway at our church, getting in my car, getting to my mom as fast as we could. 
My mom was disoriented to say the least. She didn't know what was going on. Her life is just being torn apart and turned upside down as we speak. And, but we just didn't know exactly what was going to happen. So we get in the car, we drive right down the street from her work to the hospital in downtown Sandusky. And we get out and we get where the emergency room is. And we found out that we beat the ambulance there. And so my mom and my aunt, they go into the waiting room and the emergency room and I stood outside because I just wanted to see if he was okay. So I hear the ambulance coming and they pull into the emergency room and they open the back doors really quickly and I see an EMT furiously doing chest compressions on him. And I lost all hope at that point. I just crumpled to the ground and I just cried. Because this isn't just a stepdad. This was... My dad from age 10, I have a dad and he's a great guy, but he was also my dad as well. And I just had all these flashbacks of our memories together and I didn't know if he was dead or alive, but it was just hitting me so hard. The security guard at the hospital said, sir, you can't stay here. You have to move in into the waiting room. And so I did that. My mom and my aunt and my wife were there and we're praying and we're hoping and we're begging and we're just saying, God, please spare his life. And then it unfolded like a scene in a movie. We're gathered in this little waiting room and we look at the door and we see these nurses and doctors coming in and they were resigned to themselves and they took off their hats and they looked down and then looked at my mom's eyes and said, we tried everything, but he's gone. I hope none of you here have ever had to experience something like that. And if you do, you have my full empathy. Losing somebody like that is really difficult. Even if you haven't, what I know you and I do have in common is that you and I experience pain and suffering on a daily basis as we try to travel through this world, this broken, fractured world. There are some of you, because we live in a broken, fractured world that has experienced so much hardship, I imagine someone here today has heard from a doctor recently saying that the cancer's back and there's no treatment for that. What do you do when your life is turned upside down in that way? All of us, we are working through trying to figure out how to live life in a pandemic and when it seems like it's getting better and then it takes a turn and it just feels so heavy it's affected our churches. It's affected our relationships. It's affected our re relationship with the Lord. It's affected our financial situation. It has been so difficult to try to walk through this. Others of you here, you walk around with a smile behind the mask. I can see it in your eyes. And yet we all know that behind that smile is pain. If you're like me, a few years ago, I walked through a very deep, time of depression and loneliness and anxiety. And I imagine for some of you here, you understand that pain. There's others of us that are experiencing pain and suffering, not just because we live in a broken world, but because we follow Jesus. There are some of us in families who started to follow Jesus in a family that does not have Christ followers. And you know how they talk about you and how they exclude you and what they say even to your face. There's some of you going to school, trying to be faithful to Jesus in your public school, bringing your Bible, praying, trying to be pure in your life, and you know how the people in your classes and on your sports team look at you. Others of you in workplaces trying to be a person of integrity, doing the right thing, but other people around you, they feel judged by you. Others of you are following Jesus and you're trying to do it faithfully, but the enemy is after you and trying to attack you. 
and you feel like you wanna give up altogether. All of us, if I were to ask you, raise your hand if you've experienced one of those things or multiple things, every hand would be raised in the air because we live in a world filled with brokenness. And there is so often, I see it all the time in my position, Christians who love Jesus and they're trying their best, incur suffering, and then they start asking the question, how could God allow this to happen to me? And then it leads them down this slippery slope of questioning God's love altogether. Before you know it, they've walked away entirely. Some of you are close. Some of you are on that path. You know, you're just holding on by a thread. When it comes to the church, there's often times when we're going through suffering in this world, we as a church can let that infiltrate our walls. We can let the darkness infiltrate what's happening inside of our church. The enemy can get a foothold. And when the enemy gets a foothold, we are ineffective for being the witnesses in this desperate world that Christ is asking us to be. But what if I told you there's a different path? What if I told you that God does not waste your pain? That in suffering, God can do one of three things. Oftentimes it's all three. That he can use it to purify your faith. He can use it for his glory in ways we will never see this side of heaven. And oftentimes he uses our pain to reach people who don't know Jesus. And through your suffering, when you are faithful to him and you trust him, it is a message to people who will never walk foot or will never step foot in these doors. There are people watching how you're trusting God right now, what you're going through. And they're deciding in their mind, should I believe in your Jesus or not? That doesn't mean we walk around and we're fake and we have to say hallelujah and life's a bunch of rainbows and unicorns. That's not what it's about. Gritty faith is saying at the end of the day, I don't know what to do, but I know who's in charge and I will entrust that to him. That's what people are looking at in your life. Your non-believing family and friends and coworkers, they won't say it to you but they're watching you. And as a church, outside of really seeing what happened in the first century, at least here in America, I've never seen more of an opportunity to be a witness for Christ. Our world is dark. It is the church that's supposed to shine the light of hope. That's the path that God wants to take us on. And when we look at Revelation 14, especially the first seven verses or so, we're going to see that this is God's path for us. And John is going to tell us the steps to take to remain on that path. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Revelation 14. Last week, Pastor Jim, as we looked at Revelation 13, said the beast is loose. That Satan is trying to torment the church, that it's dark And we see in in, in Revelation 14 that even though that is happening around the church and in the world, God is still speaking. And when God is speaking, that is a good thing. Because when he speaks, either through the angels that we'll see here or even to the church, that means people have a chance to turn back to Jesus. And the angel that we see in this passage in verse six and seven are going to tell us exactly what God's message is for the world. So Revelation 14, verse six and seven. John said, I saw another angel flying in midair. And what does he have? He had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. 
Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. John says that this angel came, he proclaimed the gospel. What is the gospel? That Jesus has come to us. We can't get to him. He's come to us. He lives a sinless, perfect life because we can't. He dies on the cross for all of our sin, our shame, our guilt, our past, death itself. And then what happens? Death can't hold him down. Our sin can't hold him down. Our past can't hold him down. He is victorious and raises and is raised from the dead. The angel is saying, look, if you turn back to God, because the gospel, he will welcome you in. And yes, the angels are proclaiming that, but guess who else needs to proclaim that? G or the church. And when God speaks, the church has a purpose and that purpose is to be a witness to those who don't know him. And what John's going to lay out in these first five verses are three ways that you and I can approach suffering in a way that can impact our non-believing family, friends, coworkers, and schoolmates. So jump back with me up to the top, Revelation 14, verse one. He says, then I looked and there before me was the lamb. He was standing on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Imagine this scene for a moment. Here's Jesus. It says he's in Mount Zion. Mount Zion is the central location of God's renewed kingdom. God is going to take all of this junk that surrounds us in this world. He's going to make it new. He's going to bring heaven to earth. And we see there's Jesus reigning right in the midst of that. But what is Jesus doing? He is standing you and I can read that and say, oh, what's the big deal? The big deal is that word is a, is a uh, military metaphor signifying what? Victory. Jesus is standing in victory over all the things that are surrounding the church at that moment in the same thing here. He is on the throne. He is in control. Even when life is falling apart around us and it's hard to see through the darkness, we know that our savior reigns. That's why the first step in walking down God's path in order to be faithful to him in our pain is to remember who is on the throne. Remember that Jesus occupies the throne. But if we're honest, we forget about that very quickly. I know I do. I wanna be on Sunday, I'm worshiping, the worship band is killer, message, everything feels good, and then all of a sudden I get home. My little kids are running around. Or life starts to hit me outside, I go from church to home and things are happening and it's so easy to, for, to forget who's on the throne. How do we know that we've lost sight of who Jesus is when we leave Sunday morning church? Well, we act in ways that are manipulative, or angry, or prideful, selfish, arrogant. I'm not just saying the times that were like that. It's a pattern in our lives. The people that are closest to us could point that out. For me, when I lose sight of who's on the throne, I start to get angry. I take it out of my kids, I take it out of my wife, I take it out on the ones that I love the most because I forget who is truly in control. That I've taken my eyes off of him onto something or someone else. My question is, when you look at your life, do you see those patterns in your life as well? Individually, we can act that way, but as a church, we 
have forgotten that God reigns on the throne. How do I know that? Because Jesus says that people, the world, those who don't come into this room, if they're trying to evaluate if God is real or not, he will know, they will know through our love for one another, right? What has happened to that? For some reason, we've turned our eyes off of God on the throne and we've placed it on a political power or we've placed it on something else that we think is in control and we're bowing down to that and you can see in our actions. I am appalled sometimes to call myself a Christian lately. Not because I'm embarrassed about Jesus, I'm embarrassed about what's happening amongst his people. That literally, I know people who have fractured relationships and left churches over a piece of cloth we wear on our face. In a time where we as the church get to herald the good news and say that our Savior is on the throne, when I look out and I see Christians like me, it's hard to distinguish who is following Jesus and who isn't. Christ followers, it's time to put our eyes back on the throne. He's in control. And I'm not taking away from your pain or suffering just to say, well, he's in control. He is. And if you and I don't get that and get that vision every single day, we are going to go down a path that is hard to come back from. Our world is looking to us to know what hope is. And far too often, we're looking more like the world than we should. Let us take our eyes off of something else and put it back on Jesus. For he occupies the throne. John goes on to say, if you want to continue to follow Jesus, no matter what's happening around you, you want to stay on his path as you go through pain and suffering, then you and I are called to sing a song of joy in the face of suffering. John goes on in verse two. And I heard a sound from heaven, like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of a harpist playing their harps. What was the church doing? Sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn that song except 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. A few years ago, I was with a friend at Panera and he was bringing in some of his ministry friends. And so we all gathered together at Panera and you know how it is at Panera, you walk in and you try to figure out what you want. And so we're standing in line, talking about what we're going to eat, talking about life. And all of a sudden the guy next to me, who I never met before, he starts to sing a worship song, loudly. I mean, like he was going for it. Like it was his concert and we all had a front row to it. And I'm saying, I'm like, I don't even know this dude. I'm about to have lunch with this guy. And he is so embarrassing right now. The, the people that were helping with our orders, the people around us, people in the other room, they were looking because he was so loud. And then I looked, cause he's a little tall me. I looked at him and I'm judging him. I'm like, will you just stop putting me in a bad light right now? And I'm looking at him and all of a sudden God just humbles me. When I looked at his face, I was overwhelmed with how much joy, how much love, how much kindness, how much peace this guy had. I literally thought to myself, when I see Jesus face to face, his face is going to look like him. He was so in love with Jesus. 
He had so much joy in Jesus that it radiated out of him to the point where he was doing his own worship concert and he didn't care what anybody thought about him. That's how much he loved Jesus. And when I look at this text, that's all I can think about. In Revelation 14, here's this church and they are consumed with the fact that all the things around them are falling apart, but not who reigns on the throne. They trusted him. They knew they could celebrate what God is doing because God's impending victory is there. And they worshiped him. It just came out of him. They had a beautiful song of joy in the midst of suffering and pain. At the chapel, we are partners, missional partners with this organization called HBI Global Partners. Great organization. And their mission is to take the gospel into India. Now, India has climbed into the top 10 countries of most persecuted countries in the world. And yet, despite this, HBI hosted over 100 pastors, church leaders, and wives from India. And as they were there, they recommitted themselves, not just to Christ, but to ministry, saying, we will serve Jesus no matter what. And do you know what their mantra was that weekend? We are prepared to suffer and die. Now I have some pictures of this group for you. We'll put on the screen. And right here is the group of pastors and their wives gathered for a picture, but it's this picture that I just could not get my eyes off of. When I'm tired Sunday morning, sometimes I don't even want to go to church. (laughs) Here these people are worshiping despite the fact that when they leave, they could be imprisoned or killed for their faith. And they're singing a song of joy in the midst of pain and suffering. Now, some of you are here today and you're like, well, I can't sing like Andy Crowder. Either can I. (laughs) Or maybe you're thinking, do I have to go around and sing a song the next time I go to Panera with my friends? No, that's not what Jesus is saying here. The question is, does your life sing? Are you so in love with Jesus that it just overflows? not just with a song, but your life. The last time you were with non-Christians, did they have a better view of Jesus when they were with you and when you left than they did before? Would they say, man, this person, no matter what they're going through, it is really tough, but man, does their life sing a song that they trust this Jesus no matter what they're going through. And they're not fake about it. They're real. They're questioning. They have a lot of things going on. But at the end of the day, they're submitting to Christ and knowing he's on the throne. That will speak. That will preach. What does D.L. Moody say? Out of 100 people, 100 non-Christians, one will read the Bible, the other 99 will read the Christian. It is when you and I See Jesus and are enthralled with him that no matter what we're doing, it just comes out of us that our non-believing friends and coworkers and family will see Jesus too and they have a chance to come to know him. John's clear that you gotta remember who's on the throne first and then you get a chance when you do to sing a song of joy in the face of pain. John gives us one more step here in Revelation 14. He says that we ought to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now, if you're a Christ, you're like, of course, but what does that actually mean? 
John goes on to say this about the church. He says, these are those who did not defile themselves with women for they remain virgins. And then he says this, they follow the lamb wherever he goes. They follow the lamb wherever he goes. When you look at your life, are you going the direction you wanna go and tagging God on when it's convenient? Or no matter what he asks of you, you go the way he goes. For John says they were purchased from among mankind and offered his first fruits to God and the lamb. No lie was found in their mouths. They are blameless. John's saying to follow Jesus wherever he goes means to have a character like Jesus. For he said the church is blameless. They're pure. And when you read the gospels, how many opportunities that Jesus had to turn his back on the father in sin, but he never does. He doesn't succumb to temptation. He is so pure, so blameless in his life that his one mission is to fulfill the mission of coming to die on our behalf. We ought to be like that too. It is so easy to present somebody than you really aren't. I have to catch myself all the time. Stop projecting, stop being fake and allow God to get in there. Those closets that we won't open to other people and we won't open to God, those are the places that we need God to get into so our character as a whole is blameless and pure. So we follow Jesus wherever he goes and become like him. But if you stop there, you'll think that's what it's all about. But John says, wait a minute here. When I'm telling you that they follow the lamb wherever he goes, that means they followed the lamb into the slaughter. That they are willing to go into the fiery furnace of suffering. I have a few favorite Bible characters. They change all the time. But right now, my top three is always Paul. Because you can't really go wrong with Paul. Esther, because I just love her story and how God is there, even though he's not. But also Peter. I resonate with Peter because I am Peter. I say things wrong all the time. And if I were in Peter's shoes, I probably would tell Jesus he's wrong too. (laughs) Because here's Peter. He has a chance to get this inside knowledge of what Jesus is about to do. And Jesus says, I have not come to establish the kingdom you think I've come to do. I will wear a crown, but it's going to be a crown of thorns. I've come to suffer. And Peter's like, uh, no, you're not. And pretty quickly, though, Peter watches Jesus. He realizes that if Jesus, it says in Philippians 2, is going to be brought high, he must die first. And Peter says, not only should you die first, or should Jesus die first, you are called to follow in his footsteps. Peter does a 180. In fact, when he's writing, to a gathered churches, telling them about Jesus. 1 Peter 2.21 tells us that to this you were called, that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, and you should follow in his footsteps. I love that it said that Christ suffered, not period, Christ suffered for you. That when Jesus suffered, Not only did God raise him to the highest position, but he suffered so that you and I can join him. That when he took on the the throne of these piercing, or this piercing crown of of thorns, he exchanges that for a a throne of glory for us. Isn't that amazing? And when you suffer and you follow Jesus and you trust him enough to suffer, even if it's not what you want, People around you, 
will notice. And they're gonna want what you want as well. You see, June 20th, 2017 is a day I'll never forget. It's the worst day of our lives. I remember getting into the car with my mom and my wife and you know, I'm supposed to be the pastor. I'm supposed to be the person that knows everything. And I am going through this Rolodex of questions that I have never seen answered in scripture before. And I don't know what to do. Like I didn't have an answer for how could this happen to such a great guy? I didn't have an answer to how are we going to tell my boys who idolized him who is at their game the night before that he won't be at the baseball game that night. I had no answer to the question of what about this guy that hit him? Why was it him? And what is he doing now? But what questions haunted me more than that was what about my mom? My mom grew up Jewish. And then in her adult life, after I came to know Christ and I think she saw Jesus in me, she was intrigued. And then she started coming to our church. Then she believed, then she was baptized. And then my stepdad, who didn't go to church for I think almost 40 years because the church was so nasty to him, finally started coming to our church. And I'm thinking to myself, God, not only do I not have the question to how is she going to go on without her best friend, but how is this going to impact her newer faith in Jesus? I had no idea. Over these last three and a half years, I've watched my mom ask the why question over and over again. All of us know we don't have the answer to that question this side of eternity, but it's a question that we like to ask God because we wish he would answer it. But what I saw beyond that was a person who grew closer to Jesus than I can ever imagine. You see, my mom cried a lot of tears and she still does three and a half years later and she's still dealing with grief. But through those tears, she can see that God reigns on the throne. And even though she doesn't know why, she knows who, who is on the throne, that he is in control. And she trusts that even on her darkest days. My mom, because she trusts in Jesus and know he's on the throne, he or she sings a song of joy every day that impacts people that don't know Jesus. Two weeks ago, we got the horrifying news that my stepdad's best friend died in his sleep. And his wife is just like my mom, didn't get to say goodbye, going through the same thing that she's going through. And guess who is there with her? Hours upon hours now, my mom, speaking hope, speaking life, helping guide her through her darkest times. My mom told me a little while back that she wants to serve at hospice because she wants to come alongside of those losing loved ones and helping them process it with dignity and hope in God's love. And then a few weeks ago, my mom said, hey, I'm gonna start serving at a pregnancy center in Norwalk. I go, what are you gonna do there? She goes, I'm gonna be a counselor. I said, you're gonna be a counselor? She said, yeah, that day when I went into the pregnancy center, the people were praying that someone would take on this role. I said, what are you gonna counsel? She goes, I'm going to counsel those who are thinking about terminating their birth. I'm gonna try to help them not do that. You talk about someone singing a song of joy in the midst of suffering. 
It's the same song that Job sings. What does he sing? Though he slays me, my hope is in him. And my mom has done that tremendously. But it gets better. My mom has followed in Jesus' footsteps in ways that I don't know how she can do it outside of God himself. One of the most incredible and most humbling scenes of the Bible is when Jesus is hanging there dying. He can barely breathe. And he ekes out these words on the cross as he looks down on his murderers. Father, forgive them if they don't know what they're doing. I remember when we were leaving the hospital, my mom said, I forgive the person that did that. And then later that night, we were just sitting around and we were crying together. We were crying cries I didn't know a human could do. And she continues with the anthem of I forgive him. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm supposed to be the one counseling you to forgive the person and you're doing that to me. But then the trial came, the day that he would be sentenced. My uncle is a lawyer, met with my mom and said, Barb, in these situations, the judge is very empathetic to the person who lost their husband in this case. Whatever you want to happen to them, more than likely a judge will side with you. He could have faced jail time, a huge fine, He could have lost his license and his job was to drive different places. And so he would have lost his livelihood. And wouldn't you know it, the day of the trial comes. My mom can't be there because it's too hard for her. My uncle stands up and says these words that my mom told him to say. He said, you look at him in the eye and you say, we lost someone that we will never get back. But I don't want another family to have to experience what we've experienced. I am sad that we've lost Scott, but I want you to know with my whole heart, I forgive you. And I will always forgive you. And I want you to go scotch-free. I don't want any punishment for you. Sure sounds like Jesus. My My uncle who was there said, the judge and those who were gathered around, the family, the person that did this was just sobbing and sobbing because that's what happens when you forgive someone a weight lifts not just from that other person but you see when we follow in Jesus' footsteps especially during pain and suffering God is going to ask us to do different things and it's going to be really hard but it's going to be really impactful if we trust him That's why we said at the beginning, you have two paths to take. You can go down the path that questions God and that's fine. But if you allow that question to continue to happen and you become bitter and angry, you could walk away from him forever. Or you can be like what we see in Revelation 14, that even though it's painful, even though it's hard, even though darkness is around us, we remember that he's on the throne. And because of that, we can sing a song of joy in the midst of the darkness. And we follow Jesus wherever he goes because he will impact people more than you will ever know. We sing a song at the chapel often on a Sunday morning. I asked uh, Andy Crowder to end our service with this song. The song's by a, a band called All Sons and Daughters and it's called Christ Be All Around Me. And really the anthem is this, I want Christ to go before me and behind me, around me. And when people look at me, will they see Christ? 
my prayer is that you would pray this anthem over your life so this can be your song of joy in the midst of pain. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.